Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 7. Preach the Gospel and Heal the Sick Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and healing the sick. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. And he commanded his disciples to preach the kingdom and heal the sick. Matthew chapter 10 verses 7 and 8, Luke chapter 9 verse 2, chapter 10 verse 9. This commandment has been understood historically as a command to Christ's church, not merely to the apostles and to the seventy. Doubtless these days, as a result of claims for miraculous healings and the exercise of the charismatic gift of healing in many churches, the texts supporting this understanding have been applied in a far narrower way by those who affirm the cessation of the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Although one does not hear the argument that preaching the kingdom was also limited to the apostles and to the seventy, which is the logical corollary of such a narrow application of the text. The fact is that wherever Christianity has gone, the healing of the sick has accompanied it. Hospitals were not invented by compassionate secular humanists with an eye on the greatest good for the greatest number in society. They were the consequence of the churches taking her commission to heal the sick seriously and of the Christianization of society. A belief that the healing of the sick must go hand in hand with preaching the gospel does not commit one to a charismatic perspective, therefore. All Christians ought to take this command of Christ seriously, and the church has throughout history. We are commanded not only to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but to heal the sick. This command binds the Reformed churches no less than the charismatic. Nor is it to be understood merely in terms of providing medical care. Of course, the provision of medical care is an important part of it. But to restrict the command to such would be to interpret it in a way that does not find support in Scripture. Christ and his apostles were not physicians and did not provide the healing by means of contemporary medical practice. Nevertheless, they healed the sick, miraculously. Even Reformed and non-charismatic churches and believers pray for divine, that is, miraculous, healing. Or at least they should do, since it is commanded in Scripture. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Such prayer does not commit one to a charismatic perspective. Let me make it clear, therefore, that I am not going to argue for a charismatic understanding of this command. I am not going to argue the case for the contemporary commitment to the charismatic gift of healing. Neither am I going to argue against it, at least not here. My point is simply that this command has been understood historically, leaving aside the contemporary debate about the charismatic gifts, as having a present application. 
This command binds us as Christians, whatever our perspective on the charismatic gifts, to the healing of the sick in Christ's name as an inevitable accompaniment of the preaching of the kingdom of God. And not only by the use of medical science, which for sure is not excluded, indeed, it is a necessary part of it. Compare James chapter 1 verse 27, chapter 2 verses 15 and 16, but also by means of prayer for miraculous healing. As already indicated, to understand the command as not involving such divine intervention would be to interpret it in a way that is not consistent with the record of the church's practice in the scriptures themselves. In other words, the command does not apply exclusively to miraculous healing, but this is at least an important part of it, because there are situations in which modern medicine does not have the answers. Such an understanding of this command does not, in itself, argue the case for the continuation of the charismatic gift of healing. Quite the contrary, we are given instructions as to what we are to do when sickness strikes. The elders are to pray over the sick person and anoint him with oil, praying that any sins that have been committed be forgiven. James chapter 5 verse 13 to 15. This all Christians should accept as the ongoing practice of the church without denying that God can work outside this const- without denying that God can work outside this context as well. This is healing by God directly in response to prayer without the intervention of medicine. Nevertheless, even when medical science is the direct means of healing, we must trust ourselves primarily to God as the healer and medical science as one of the means he uses in his mercy. And we must not be like Asa, king of Judah, who trusted himself to the physicians instead of to God. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12. But we find ourselves in a difficult situation today. The healing of the sick is at best a hit-and-miss thing in the practice of modern Christianity. However much we might like to dress it up otherwise and pretend that the church exercises a healing ministry, the church does not heal the sick in any convincing way today, not in any way that is convincing to non-believers, and not even in a way that is convincing to many believers. And this is true on both fronts of the church's healing activities, that is, the practice of medical science and prayer for miraculous healing. Let us look at the medical side first. The church's commission to heal the sick has been taken over by the state on the medical front. This is not meant to be a criticism of the many Christians who work in the medical profession, but the fact is that people do not see the church as an institution that provides healing in any sense today on the whole. They see the state as the institution that provides healing. Is there a problem in the health service? Most Christians in Britain would probably see the answer as somehow involving state funding of the NHS more adequately, that is, via taxation or borrowing. But the Bible does not even recognise the state as legitimately acting in this sphere at all. Christian answers to the problems that face our society cannot be found down a route that is, in principle, not in accord with biblical ideas of social order. If even Christians trust the state rather than God to provide healing, is there any wonder non-believers do not recognise the church's mission in this area? 
whereas the church in times past was recognised as providing for society significantly in this area, especially for those who were not able to provide for themselves, the poor, the church has virtually abandoned all claim to this role today. The state has taken over completely. This is just another aspect of the state's usurpation of roles that belong to other organisations. But essentially, with healing, the result has been to create a trust in the state. That is, people see the state as the author of salvation in this area. Now, of course, I use the NHS. I am not suggesting that Christians stop going to see their NHS doctor or stop using NHS hospitals. Why? Because we are now, as a Christian nation, effectively in a state of occupation by the enemy, secular humanism. We cannot realistically do otherwise, at least for the time being. But being in a situation where we have to accept that the NHS is the primary provider of medical health care in society, which we are forced to pay for via taxation anyway, does not mean that we should be ideologically committed to state health provision in principle. Unless we are prepared to think through and develop a distinctively Christian approach to the provision of healthcare, we shall never be able to free ourselves from our enslavement to the state in this sphere. Most people cannot afford private health insurance in a society as socialist as ours is. In any case, Britain does not really have an optional private health service. The private system in Britain is largely a queue-jumping system, since the doctors who service the private system are the same ones who service the state system. Having private health insurance means usually that you see your NHS-trained and NHS-employed physician at a time when someone else on the NHS is waiting for an appointment. The doctor gets paid for the appointment via the insurance policy, that is, privately, but he also works in the NHS and the time spent with a private patient means a time delay for the NHS patient next on the list. Or he may get an appointment for you to see a specialist at an NHS hospital a good deal earlier than if you had waited on the NHS list. But even then, this specialist would be taking time out of his NHS list to see his private patients. This is not a private system at all. It is a queue-jumping system. This is not meant to be a criticism of those who use this private queue-jumping system. My purpose is merely to point out that we do not have a proper alternative private system in Britain. Nor is it meant to be an argument against private medical health insurance, private medical health care. Quite the contrary, it is an argument for a proper private system. Neither is it to argue that the free market will provide suitable health care for all. I do not believe it will, though I do believe it will provide a significant part of it. But we need to stop pretending we have a private health system. We do not. We have a private queue-jumping system, which those who can afford pay for. This is a far cry from the Christian ideals upon which Christian healthcare works. Health provision for society as a whole in our nation was born out of Christian ideals. And the Church still has a responsibility in this area. But the state has taken over 
because the church has withdrawn. So now people look to the state where once they looked to the church and Christians on the whole in Britain seem to think this is a good thing. But the consequence is that the church in this area, as in so many others, is now irrelevant. She has no role and people do not look to the God she proclaims as having any role in their lives when it comes to such things. Why? Well, in part, the church has been telling us that this is the job of the state. The state must fund health care by taxes. Our nation has even been told that this is a Christian ideal. And yet, in the very practice of it, virtually every Christian virtue is under assault in the state-run health service, witness abortion, and the attempts to legalise euthanasia. Just as Christian principles are under attack in the state education system, witness the stripping of Christian values from education on just about every level. Under the state-run system, we now have the absurd situation in which one can get a, quote, sex change, unquote, on the NHS, but those who suffer from multiple sclerosis cannot get the latest and most effective drugs to alleviate their condition. To argue that this is immoral is seen as religious bigotry by secular humanists. The Christian values underpinning medical healthcare have gone. Now we have the ethics of state-run healthcare, which is supposed to be religiously neutral. This will not stop or be reversed in the state system of healthcare or education, despite the considerable money that Christians pour into trying to halt the decline each year under the misguided notion that they can Christianize a pagan system. The effect of such actions is, at best, to clean up secular humanism. But that is simply not good enough. It does not fulfil the Church's commission. For the time being, we have to abide in the situation we have. But we can start building for the future if only the church will awake from her slumber. But this means there must be leadership. And this is where the church has fallen down. The church's failure today is a failure of leadership. A Christian healthcare system would operate on criteria different from the secular humanistic criteria of the state-run system across the board. But one would not know this from the stance taken by the church, which on the whole, supports the idea of a state-owned health service. What about the other front, that is, the Church's prayer for the sick? Miraculous healing? Well, it's all a bit hit and miss, really. I'm not saying people never get healed, but they do so far less than is claimed, and the dubious stories we so often hear and read of today, in the name of divine healing, hardly inspire trust in God as our healer. The Church's witness to God in terms of healing in this respect is often a bad one. People do not see the Church as a source of compassion and healing for their diseases, but rather as a group of con men trying to claim miracles as a testimony to a particular sect or charismatic leader. In other words, people do not see this infatuation with miraculous healing as a genuine concern for the sick or the glory of God, though doubtless it is on the part of many Christians. In this respect, 
The words of John Owen are pertinent, quote, It is not likely but that God might, on some occasions, for a longer season, put forth his power in some miraculous operations, and so he yet may do, and perhaps doth some time, but the superstition and folly of some ensuing ages, inventing and divulging innumerable miracles, false and foolish, proved a most disadvantageous prejudice unto the gospel, and a means to open a way unto Satan to impose endless delusions upon Christians. For as true and real miracles with becoming circumstances were the great means that won and reconciled the regard and honour unto Christian religion in the world, so the pretense of such as either were absolutely false, or such as whose occasions, ends, matter or manner were unbecoming the greatness and holiness of him who is the true author of all miraculous operations, is the greatest dishonour unto religion that anyone can invent. End quote. The fact is, neither non-believers, nor even believers on the whole, turn to the church for healing today, whether of the miraculous kind or as a provider of medical care. And when they do turn to her for miraculous healing in response to prayer, they are usually disappointed. Why is this? I should like to suggest a possible answer to this in what follows. It is not meant to be a dogmatic statement, but rather to suggest a reason for the Church's current lack of credibility, not only in her mission to heal the sick, but also in her mission to preach the Gospel with any significant results for individuals or society. By results here, I do not mean merely bums on seats or money in coffers, but rather changed lives and a changed society, something that is seldom observed as a result of modern evangelistic campaigns or in modern conversions, even where people have genuinely come to believe in Christ as saviour of their souls. I suggest that the reason the sick are not healed by the church today, or in a rather hit and miss and shoddy fashion, is that the gospel is preached in a rather hit and miss and shoddy fashion. In other words, I suggest there is a direct link between the two parts of the command, between the preaching of the gospel and the healing of the sick. That is to say, unless we preach the gospel properly, we shall not be able to heal the sick properly, and the proper preaching of the gospel will lead to the proper healing of the sick. If your church, therefore, has a rather poor record of healing the sick in its services, as most churches in Britain do, or providing for the sick in other ways, as most do, the real problem lies not on the heal the sick side of the equation, but on the preach the gospel side. Because it is my belief that the gospel is preached very poorly in our land today. I am not referring to preaching by liberals and the like, who often do not even claim to believe in the God of the Bible. I do not think the church's problem lies with them, but rather with the evangelicals who have handed over custodianship of the faith to them without a fight, and who content themselves with sitting around tut-tutting about all the terrible things that the liberals are doing in the church, but seldom try to do anything about this in real terms. I am referring to the gospel preached by evangelicals, however that term should be defined or understood. Why should we expect God to heal the sick 
in answer to our prayers, if we refuse to preach the gospel in its fullness, if we preach a cut-down version of the kingdom of God, can we not expect a cut-down version of the healing of the sick? Evangelicals preach a gospel of sorts, but it is generally a truncated version of the one given us in the Bible. It is often little more than, quote, pie in the sky when you die, unquote. Consequence, not much healing of the sick. A cut-down preaching of the message of salvation brings with it a cut-down healing of the sick. If we preach the gospel, we should be able to heal the sick, but we do not. We preach convenience religion, catatonic, comfy zone evangelicalism, instead of the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom brings discomfort and challenge. And what Christians seem to want in Britain today is a comfy zone Christianity. We don't want any tribulation. By tribulation here, I do not mean being thrown to the lions and the like. I mean the challenge that living life as a Christian brings. Whatever that challenge is, the answer too often of the church, of individuals and of church groups is, quote, we can't do that, unquote, which translated into what people usually think rather than what they say means, quote, I don't want to do that. It would be inconvenient, end quote. Well, being thrown to the lions is a major inconvenience, a lot more inconvenient than providing your children with a Christian education instead of the secular humanist one they get at the local state school, including state-funded Church of England schools, which are usually little different from other state schools, or at a prestigious private school, which is much more convenient and, in the case of the former, paid for by someone else on the whole. But so often we will not endure even the lesser tribulations that living the Christian life requires, both individually or as churches. So we tailor the gospel to suit our tastes, to fit in with our comfy zone. The result? Catatonic Christianity. At all costs, the world must not be turned upside down. That would be too inconvenient. Yet we are told that we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. Acts chapter, Acts chapter 14 verse 22. And unless the world is turned upside down by what we preach, we are preaching a defective gospel. One consequence of this, but by no means the only one, is that the sick will not be healed, or at least not in any convincing way that demonstrates the church's passion for God or her compassion for the sick. Of course, there are many Christians who are desperately committed to the healing of the sick, both in medical terms and as miraculous answer to prayer. But perhaps the problem is sometimes that the cart is put before the horse. In other words, healing ministries come before the preaching of the gospel in its fullness. In other words, healing ministries come before the preaching of the gospel in its fullness. Jesus did not tell us to set up healing ministries. He certainly did not tell us to set up healing ministries and then heal the sick on a hit-and-miss basis. He did not promise to heal the sick on a hit-and-miss basis, but neither did he tell us to preach the gospel of personal salvation at death 
devoid of any real meaning for our lives in the here and now. He did not tell us to preach, High in the sky when you die. He told us to preach the kingdom of God and to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel we are now given in the Bible is a gospel that impacts on our daily lives now, or at least should, to the extent that when people begin living it out, it will turn their world upside down. Acts chapter 17 verse 6 Perhaps in times past, when our society was more Christian, this characteristic of Christianity was less obvious, though I'm not entirely convinced of such an argument. But today, we live in an aggressively anti-Christian society. If our preaching of the gospel does not challenge both ourselves and the world, it is defective preaching. Unless the church is turning the society of which she is a part upside down, something is missing. We are not being the church effectively. We may go to church, sing all the hymns and choruses, say all the right things, but still fail to live effectively as Christians. This is not to deny the salvation of individuals, but one can have a saved soul and a wasted life. If all the church does is to go through rituals, good as those rituals are, we are not being the church effectively. We have to stop thinking about planting and building up churches as the business of Christianity, that is, building institutions dedicated to the Christian cultus, and start thinking about how we are to be the Christian church, the body of Christ, a Christian community of faith, to the society God has put us in. I suspect this is at the heart of the church's problem today. The gospel we preach is a cut-down version, and the churches we are part of are cut-down churches. What people get when they come into contact with Christianity is, quite simply, the cut-down version. Just as some people buy the cut-down version of computer programs, which cannot do all the things that the full versions can do, because the full versions are too expensive for them, so also Christians find the full version of the Christian faith too inconvenient, too much hassle in their lives, so they settle for the cut-down version. They are content to be brands snatched from the fire, to have a saved soul and a wasted life. So, what is the nature of this cut-down version of the faith? Primarily, it is a gospel that treats salvation as deliverance from hell and an eternal home in heaven at death. Hellfire insurance. It emphasises the eternal only. As one evangelical lady once said to me, quote, I think death is the most wonderful thing in the world. I'm looking forward to it. But Jesus said that he came that we might have life more abundantly. John chapter 10 verse 10. Not that we might have death more abundantly. Of course, as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is a cardinal doctrine of the faith. Without it, there is no salvation ultimately. But the faith addresses our lives here and now in a decisive way. It changes everything. 
not merely our eternal destiny. So, why do so many Christians have this truncated view of the gospel? The answer to this question lies in the gospel that is preached. The evangelical gospel of today is not biblical. It is devoid of true religion. That is, it is devoid of an overarching religious structure that anchors man in God's will for his life. Put in more biblical terms, it is devoid of the covenant. This does not mean that Christians are not regenerate, that they do not exercise saving faith, but it does mean that, due to the lack of teaching in the churches about what the faith is, the evangelical practice of the faith is one-sided. Evangelicalism, on the whole, lacks a biblical paradigm for structuring this present life in such a way that it provides a meaningful context for the expression of the Christian faith. Where is such a paradigm to be found? In the concept of covenant, and particularly as it refers to this present life in the Old Testament, of course, many Reformed churches preach covenant theology, but even this is usually a cut-down version of the covenant with a narrow focus on soteriology and ecclesiology. The biblical covenant, the covenant of grace, and thus the biblical gospel, is much broader than this, and to restrict the covenant to soteriology and ecclesial matters is to misunderstand the nature of the biblical concept of salvation. Thus, the evangelical gospel of today, including that preached by most Reformed churches in Britain, is unbiblical precisely because of its neglect of the covenant. As a result, evangelicals often do not have the biblical tools or raw material with which to work in determining the Christian attitude to many issues. While the evangelical churches concentrate exclusively on New Testament Christianity, they will miss the significance of the faith for this life and the salvation of our society and culture, as well as our souls. And in doing this, they will continue to preach an unbiblical gospel that has no basis in the New Testament either, but only in a truncated view of the New Testament. How is this? When the New Testament speaks of Scripture, it speaks of the Old Testament. When Christ spoke of the Scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. When he rebuked the Pharisees, telling them that they erred because they did not know the Scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. It is these scriptures, says Jesus, that, quote, testify of me, end quote, John chapter 5, verse 39, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Likewise, when Paul speaks of, quote, the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ, end quote, and says that, quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, end quote. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, he speaks of the Old Testament. The believers of the apostolic era did not have a New Testament, though they did have the teaching of the apostles, which was founded on the doctrines of the Old Testament. Compare Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The Old Testament, which testifies of Christ, is the foundation of the New, and the New cannot be properly interpreted outside of the context of the Old. As Augustine said, quote, The New Testament is latent in the Old, and the Old is patent in the New. End quote. But today we hear of New Testament Christians. This mentality is symptomatic of the cut-down version of the faith that prevails among evangelicals, but it is a less powerful gospel and a distorted gospel. Christ's own teaching of the gospel of the kingdom, of his purpose in coming to die for sinners, strikes at the heart of this reductionist version of the faith. The Old Testament is not an optional extra for the serious-minded or the religious enthusiast. It is at the heart of the Christian faith. That is how it is presented in the New Testament and in Christ's own teaching. The Old Testament is fundamental to the Gospel itself. Christ says to the Jews, quote, Had ye believed in Moses, ye would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But ye believe not his writings. How shall ye believe my words? End quote. John chapter 5 verses 46 and 47. Unless we understand Moses, we shall misunderstand Christ. Yet, a desire to understand Moses is hardly a characteristic of modern evangelicalism. Christianity for most evangelicals is a New Testament affair. The greater part of Scripture is neglected. This neglect even results in a distortion of the faith. For example, in one evangelical church, I heard the message that basically God had three plans. The first two, the cultural mandate and the giving of the law through Moses, went wrong, so God sent his son to die for sinners instead. This is not too far removed from the schoolboy quip about why God gave everyone four cheeks. This is the heart of the evangelical gospel today. The gospel supersedes the cultural mandate and the law of the covenant. Jesus told us plainly that this is not what he came to do. He did not come to negate the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, that is, to bring them into their full expression. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Thus, Jesus says that unless we understand Moses, we will not understand him. His gospel cannot be separated from his word in the law and the prophets. If we cut ourselves off from the whole message of the Bible, either by using only the New Testament or by spiritualizing the Old Testament away, we will end up with a cut-down version of the faith and inevitably a cut-down experience of the Christian life, including answers to prayer for healing. If we want to heal the sick, we must preach the whole gospel. If we preach a cut-down gospel, we shall have cut-down healing. What is the gospel? It is the good news about the kingdom of God. It involves the whole word of God for the whole of life. This means that we must cease practicing Christianity merely as a personal worship hobby and make it our religion, that is, what structures our whole lives in thought, word and action. We must bring the word of God incarnate into the whole of our lives by looking to the word of God in scripture 
to guide the whole of our lives. It is no good merely asking Jesus into our hearts, that is, to save our souls. We must bring him into the life of our society at all levels, into our family life, our economic life, our leisure life, our work life, our political life, our medical life, our children's educational life, by listening to his word and seeking to conform ourselves to his word in all areas of life. Unless we subject ourselves to Christ and his word in this way, the gospel we preach will be a cut-down version. But where do we go to get teaching, principles for action, understanding for all this? The New Testament alone does not provide this. The Old Testament is a vital deposit of God's word for these areas of life. The New Testament does not claim to supersede all the teaching of the Old in these areas. It claims rather to be based on the Old Testament and to bring it up to date, so to speak, to show us how to bring the teachings of the Old Testament into fuller expression now that Christ has come and given his great commission to his disciples, that is, the discipling of the nations. How shall we do this if we neglect the very words of Christ in the Old Testament, which comprises the larger part of the Bible? The result will be a distorted and a defective gospel. The reason, I suggest, that the whole world is cynical about the Church's claims of miraculous healing is that there is little substance to these claims. This is because there is little substance to the Christian faith itself, as practiced by the Church in Britain today. The problem is not really that there is little substance to the claims of healing. Rather, the problem is that there is little substance to the practice of the faith across the whole of life. And this inevitably affects the Church's healing ministry. In short, if we preached and lived the Gospel more fully, we should find that the sick would be healed more convincingly. And this would have repercussions, not only for the healing of the sick, but also in other areas, including politics, economics, education, etc. The effect surely would be to turn the world upside down. If we do not want Christ to rule our political, social, vocational, economic and educational lives, why should we expect him to jump every time we ask him for healing when we are ill. For many years, full-time Christian work has been seen as the work of the clergy and possibly medical missionaries. It is true that in recent years there has been a reaction to this in which whole-body ministry has been stressed. But this ministry has still been narrowly conceived as ministry within the walls of the institutional church. In other words, its emphasis has been to share out the minister's job among a greater number of people. I suggest this is a wrong-headed notion to some extent, not because I think church leadership should be a one-man band, I do not, but because it focuses too narrowly on what Christian work is. It confines it to the institutional church instead of seeing it as our cultural mandate in the world. Still, the emphasis is only on the narrow soteriological and ecclesial aspects of the faith and also on the medical and the healing of the sick. Perhaps this has been because of a failure to understand the meaning of the command to preach the gospel and heal the sick, as if the church and hospitals are the only areas of life 
that Christ is concerned about. The rest of life is neutral. There's no such thing as Christian art, Christian music, Christian politics, etc. Just art, music and politics, which, because of their association with the world, must be avoided. In this perspective, Christ has not come to redeem the world, only individual souls. On the contrary, the gospel is for the whole of life. God commands us to bring all things into obedience to his word incarnate by submitting to his word in scripture as our rule of life. It means a lot of things. But because our nation is now occupied by the enemy, our ability to do a great deal on all these levels is limited. That does not mean we should not try, but it does mean we shall progress slowly. But there is an example in which our ability to respond to God's call upon us is not so limited, at least here in Britain. It is an area where the Christian still has a great deal of freedom and where he is able to do something significant and constructive. Let us use it as a test. The area I speak of is the education of our children. God requires us as Christians to give our children a Christian education are not expected to hand their children over to secular humanist schools for their education. Of course, there are a few Christian schools, but homeschooling is also an option and it is growing in this country. Those who homeschool their children are no longer isolated individuals. Oh, that's not for me. I can't do it, you say. Christ does not offer you a choice. He commands you to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. That includes, though is by no means limited to, their education. The Christian church, that is, the Christian synagogue, has more in common with a school than it has with a temple, which does not feature in the new covenant as a place of worship. The church is the community of faith, And in the institutional church, education has a central role to play. At the very least, therefore, supporting Christian education is a vital role of the church, the community of faith. This is why, in centuries past, Christians set up schools as well as hospitals. Our schooling system was originally largely the product of a Christian society, as were our hospitals. Both have now been given over to the state, which, as the new god of our secular society, provides health and education for its citizens. One always looks to one's god for these things. Healthcare and education are intensely religious social functions. In our secular humanist society, they are run in terms of the religion of secular humanism, as is our politics, which is also always an intensely religious activity. Well, what are you going to do? Wait until your child is asked to engage in homosexual family role-play activities in school? Don't think this will not come. Clause 28 is as good as gone. Christian lobbying groups may stave off the debacle for a while, but, as with all the other victories achieved by trying to play secular humanists at their own game, power politics they will not last for long. But suppose I am wrong and Clause 28 stays. And this is only an example. There are many other problems to consider. 
If your children are left in a secular humanist school, they will continue to be educated in terms of a secular humanist worldview. And secular humanism is a religion, regardless of whether they attend the Christian cultus on Sundays and participate in some third-rate Sunday school programme for an hour that isn't even aimed at undoing the effects of what they are bombarded with in school all year. In other words, your children will continue to be educated as secular humanists, not as Christians. This is not merely a matter of sex education and discipline. Christ is concerned with more than our sexual behaviour. He is concerned with the whole of life, all the actions that are necessarily the result of our thought life. And it is the whole of this thought life that secular humanist education seeks to affect. State schools are responsible for the academic, physical, moral, psychological and spiritual growth of the child, that is, the whole person. And raising children in the admonition of the Lord is equally concerned with all these things, with the whole person, not only religious education in the narrow sense. There are no neutral areas. Of course, there are other issues to consider besides education, but this is a good place to start because it is one of the few areas where Christians are able to do so much. If you are not alone, get together with other Christians in your church and area who want to homeschool their children. Pull your children out of school and start homeschooling them. Ask your pastor to support you and the whole idea of Christian education. If the church will not support you in seeking to promote Christian education, do it alone. Be prepared to be the only one. Make your faith count. This is not too difficult for you. Matthew chapter 11 verse 30 This will just be the start. There's more to come. But we have to start somewhere and, well, the other things we have to do will probably be much more difficult and contentious. Don't expect success elsewhere if you can't provide leadership here. Leadership training starts in the family, not in the workplace. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 4 and 12 How are we going to set up Christian hospitals, Christian law courts operating at the local level, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2, a Christian political party, ministries and services to the homeless based on the Christian work ethic, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and, perhaps most difficult of all, Christian churches, if we cannot lead our own families, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. We have more freedom, ability and power to educate our children in the faith than we have to affect just about any other field of human endeavour. But if we fail here, how can we expect to succeed elsewhere? We have to create a Christian society, a Christian nation within a nation that will in time supplant the pagan society that now exists. Waiting for the rapture will not achieve this. When we start doing this, discipling the nation as Christ commanded us to do, Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20, we can expect to see the sick healed along with a lot more things we presently pray for but do not see. But don't expect much more than phony claims of healing until we rid ourselves of the phony gospel that is preached and lived today. There is no lack of those who want to see the sick healed in the church today, but there are many who do not want to preach the 
uncompromising gospel of the kingdom of God, and we all have to fight this sin in our own hearts that militates against the desire, the desire to live it out. The catatonic, comfy zone Christianity that presently prevails in Britain is the easy option. Pie in the sky when you die. But don't expect the sick to be healed and don't expect society to turn to Christ. The choice is yours. Don't wait for someone else to do it first. God calls you now to live out the gospel in word and deed. You can start now with what is within your power and ability to do. A Christian education for your children, either at home or in a Christian school, if there is one in your area. God does not call us to do the impossible, because with God, all things are possible. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 19, verse 26. Either we believe it, or we don't. If no one else in your church or area believes it, at least you do. Make your faith count and make the words of Joshua your own. Quote, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. End quote. Joshua chapter 24, Joshua 24 verse 15. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.